Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the great blessing it is to gather in your name, that you look down on us as children through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray as we look at this book of Ezra, written many years ago, about a particular situation with the Israelites, we pray that it may indeed be edifying for us to examine today. Lord, we thank you that your word is timeless, because you are timeless. And so you are still that same God that was there at the time of Ezra. And so, Lord, we pray that we may be instructed and may benefit from studying your word together. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the subject of who you should marry is a difficult subject for those who are wanting to get married. I remember wrestling with the issue myself when I was a young single man. And one factor when you're considering who you will marry to consider is, of course, what religion the other person holds to. I was attracted to a number of girls uh, throughout my young adulthood and this is particularly at uni. I was uh, considering who would I marry and there were a few friends that I had at uni who were of different religious backgrounds to me. And there was a young Lebanese girl uh, that was a Muslim that I was very attracted to and we spent a lot of our time together and basically I'd say we were pretty much dating to some extent at one point. And then we basically brought it out into the open and discussed where to next in our relationship with one another, whether we should go the next step and go from being strong friends to actually considering marriage, to date one another. And when we brought that matter out into the open, we basically agreed that I was a firmly committed Christian and she was a firmly committed Muslim. And so in the end, uh, we decided to part ways and move on with our lives. And particularly once uh, you graduate from uni, uh, you no longer see these people to the same extent. And I, of course, started to date another girl who I then ended up marrying. But this subject, of course, is uh, an interesting subject for us to consider because it is one that people come across at some point in their life, generally speaking, as they look at who are they going to marry. And the question is, do we need to worry about the beliefs of the other person in the person that we are considering becoming our spouse? Is it okay for a Christian to marry a Hindu, a Roman Catholic, an atheist, or a Muslim? Some Christians would say, yes, it's not a problem at all. As long as you personally hold on to that faith, it's no big deal for you to marry somebody who holds a different religious belief. But the Word of God has something different to say. And that is the subject matter that we'll be looking at in Ezra chapter 9 today. It's actually been three years since I last was in Ezra with you. Uh, we've been spending a long time in Hebrews and other parts of the Bible. And I thought it was about time I came back to Ezra and finished it off. Because we worked slowly up to ch the end of chapter 8. And then we stopped with two chapters still to go. And so I thought it was about time that we came back to Ezra and examined its contents there at the end. And so I should give you a bit of background on where Ezra falls, considering it's been so long since we uh, examined this together. So how, does, how do the Israelite people get to Ezra? Well, firstly, we have to go right back to the beginning to understand where all this uh, began. And, of course, that begins with creation. In Genesis, we see Adam and Eve uh, are created by God. And then through their descendants, eventually a person comes along who is Abraham. Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son called Jacob, who is then renamed Israel. And from Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel come through the 12 sons of Israel. Those 12 sons eventually uh, move to Egypt. 
uh, because of famine, and they live in Egypt for a time, and then after a few generations we see that the, the Egyptians no longer like the Israelites, and they turn them into slaves. As a result, the Israelites eventually are led out of Egypt by a man called Moses. They make it to the Promised Land, and they spend some time in the Promised Land, in Canaan, and whilst they are there, they sin a lot, until God eventually brings an Assyrian army and then a Babylonian army in decimates most of the people and the Babylonian leader, Nebuchadnezzar, takes a remnant of that Israelite population back into Babylon. The Israelites live in Babylon for 70 years and then they're allowed to return to the Promised Land. And they come in two waves, and we see the first wave at the beginning of Ezra chapter 1, when we examined that before, and then they come under Ezra as well. And that uh, comes in the later chapters that we've examined as well, uh, from chapter 7 and 8. We see Ezra come with another group of Israelites from Babylon back to the Promised Land. And so they return, and they're quite happy to be back in their land in Israel, rather than being in exile in Babylon. And then we pick up in chapter 9 with this matter that comes before them, an unusual matter that comes before the leaders of the Israelites as they have returned to the Promised Land. What is this matter that has come to a head? Well, this new development is the fact that the Israelites have intermarried with other nations. The Israelites have intermarried with other nations. And that's my first main point this morning. If you want to follow my main points, they're printed on the back of the church bulletin. I have four main points this morning. And the first is the Israelites had intermarried. And we see that in chapter 9 of Ezra. If you've got a church Bible there, I'd encourage you to open it to page 469 as we'll be looking at the first four verses of Ezra chapter 9. Page 469 where we read in chapter 9, verse 1, After these things had been done, that's they've returned, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighbouring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. We see here in Ezra chapter 9 that the Israelites had intermarried and they had done that themselves. Uh, we see that in verse 2. It says they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and also they had encouraged their sons to marry non-Israelite women as well. It says, uh, for they themselves and their sons. And we see that they married people not just of one nation, that is non-Israelite, we see that they married women of all different nations that are around them. There's quite a list given there. The Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians and the Amorites. They've really intermarried with all the different nations that are scattered around them. And so then we've got to ask the question, okay, was this wrong? Surely it's okay to marry people of different nations? Why is this an issue? Well, that brings me to my second main point. Intermarriage was sin. This, these intermarriages were considered sin. Now, how do you know that these Israelite intermarriages were considered sin? Well, they're described as unfaithfulness. 
We see that in verse 2. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them and the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. Unfaithfulness is a good description of sin. When you're unfaithful to God, it is sin. And these intermarriages are considered sin. And it's not just considered unfaithfulness in verse 2, it's also considered unfaithfulness in verse 4. We read, Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. Now this may seem a bit racist, this text. Why is it so wrong? Why is it sinful to marry people of other nations? Surely we don't hold this today. Aren't there intermarriages between different nations, even within our own church? Would we consider that this text is telling us that it is wrong to marry people of other nations? Well, it's interesting the way it describes these intermarriages as well and the results that have come from these intermarriages. They're described as not keeping separate from the detestable practices of those people as well. That's what's happened with these marriages. We see in verse 1, it says, After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate, but they've intermarried instead, from neighbouring peoples with their detestable practices. And then later down, we see in verse 2, it says, They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. We see this concern for holiness in the part of the Israelites, and then we also see that the other nations are considered people who have detestable practices, that the other nations are actually conducting practices that God considers to be detestable, to be horrid, to be practices that do not give him glory, the glory that he deserves. So we see that it's sinful because it brings people... If you, if you marry someone, it brings someone into your life who continues doing the detestable practices that they were trained in their household and that brings that into your house and can actually lead you astray. It affects you who you bring into your home, particularly if you marry someone who is worshipping a different God and has different practices on the way they live because that will then, of course, influence you. And so that is the concern here. And Ezra considers this sin to be quite serious by the way that he behaves. How does Ezra behave? Well, we see that he behaves quite violently in verse 3. Verse 3 we read, When I heard this, this is Ezra, I tore my tunic and cloak, two pieces of clothing. He pulled hair from his head and beard from two places on his body. And he sat down appalled. This is no light matter in Ezra's eyes. This is a serious matter. We see that by his actions. He wants everybody around him to see how shameful this is by the way that he has then disfigured himself, his clothes, his, his, his uh, presentation of who he is and his, his hair, his beard, and his, his head, the hair on his head. He's looking quite shameful. If I was to come this morning with torn clothes and I had a beard and I had bits torn out of it and I had bits torn off my hair... I didn't have my hair done nicely. It would look shameful. I would be unpresentable to society. And that's what Ezra is trying to convey, that this sin of intermarriage has caused the Israelites to be unpresentable. 
to be shameful in the eyes of God because of what they've done. That they've married people who are worshipping a different God. And he sits down appalled at this to show the seriousness of this as well. And then we see other people can consider it to be quite serious as well. In verse 4, it says that they come along as well. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. They come around and they gather around Ezra and recognize that what has happened is very serious. Now, should the Israelites have known this? Is this like God coming up with a new rule that you can't marry people of different nations, of different religions, and so they've intermarried and now they're sort of caught with their hand in the cookie jar, but they never actually realized that it was wrong to put their hand in the cookie jar? No, they should have known. And that's why Ezra knows that this is wrong as well, because Deuteronomy, the law, told, Moses told them that they were not to do this. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Uh, That's page 179. Deuteronomy chapter 7, and we'll read from verse 1 through to verse 4. Page 179 of your church Bibles. And this is Moses speaking, and he's giving a second second lot of law. That's what Deuteronomy actually means in Greek. It just means second law. He's explaining the law again. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1, we read, When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Why? For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is part of the Israelite law. They should have known this, that when they got into the promised land, they were not to intermarry other people because their hearts would be turned away from following the true God. When someone comes into their home who worships a different God, there is an attraction in us that would go along with what they want to do. We can be led astray so easily. And we see this actually happened, that people started to marry before the exile, people of other nations, and one of the leaders in this was King Solomon. King David was one of the greatest kings of all of Israel. He was considered to be a man after God's own heart. But then the kingdom was torn after his son Solomon. And the Bible speaks very strongly about King Solomon's actions with the people that he married. Turn with me to 1 Kings 11. 1 Kings 11, which is page 340, page 340 of your black church Bibles. So King Solomon, who is meant to be one of the wisest men who ever lived, he was given great wisdom by God. He was not so wise in this regard. 1 Kings chapter 11, reading from verse 1, page 340, 340 of your church Bibles, where we read, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women. Besides Pharaoh's daughter, who's an Egyptian, of course, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, they were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them, because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. 
and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. And so we see that this is the beginning of the end of the Israelites. While they're there in that promised land, it actually led to their exile as they became more and more like the nations around them and did not worship God. And so we can see that intermarriage at this point in Israelite history is very serious because intermarriage led to their exile previously and now these people have come back from exile and what are they doing? They're doing the same thing all over again. They're not listening to the law of God and they're going through that same pattern which could lead to their exile again. And it's interesting that the word that they are exiles is actually mentioned in verse 4. It says, Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. They've still got in their memories, we are exiles. We've just been to Babylon for 70 years. Now we're back and what are we doing? We're breaking God's law all over again. We're allowing people to lead us astray. And so this is serious sin in God's eyes. Now we must remember that it's not serious sin to marry someone of a different nation if they want to worship the same God, if they want to worship the God of Israel. Ruth is an example of that. Ruth was a Moabitess, yet she married an Israelite. Why? Because she said, your God is my God. Your Lord is my Lord. And so she was welcome. And she actually is a descendant, an ancestor of Jesus, not a descendant, an ancestor, an ancestor of Jesus. She's a Moabite. She's not an Israelite, but she's a Moabite. Why was she allowed? Because she wanted to worship the same God. She converted. Whereas this is talking about marrying women who are not converts to Israel, Israel, um, the Israelite God. And so it's quite serious what has happened here in Israel. So that's the Israelites. They've committed this sin, and we're going to look at it in further weeks to come. But is there an application for us today? Well, that brings me to my third main point. Intermarriage is still sin. Intermarriage is still considered to be sin. Intermarriage between Christians and non-Christians is still considered wrong. And the New Testament supports this idea as well. It's not just a, an application that we drive from Old Testament texts that talk about marrying people of different religions. We see in the New Testament that this happened, uh, that the Apostle Paul encourages marrying only Christians. And we see that in a passage like 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7, which is found on page 1133. I encourage you to turn that, to that with me now as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, page 1133. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is all about marriage. If you want to have instructions about marriage, uh, then this is one of the key places you look to in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39, where it's speaking about widows. It says, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39, A woman is bound to her husband as long as she lives. But her, if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. There you go. Anyone you wish. But he must belong to the Lord. She's allowed to marry anyone she wants, but he must belong to the Lord. It doesn't matter what nation, 
they come from? As long as they belong to the Lord. Another passage that enforces this principle again is 2 Corinthians. Turn with me a few pages over to page 1145. 1145, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, where we read, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. He's saying, what fellowship can you have with an unbeliever on such an intimate level? And so we see that intermarriage is wrong for Christians as well. Why? Well, the Bible tells us it's wrong, but also we can see that it's uniting with people who have detestable practices like the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Avarites, the Egyptians, the Moabites, they had detestable practices. They worshipped different gods. And it's the same with us today. There are people all around us from different nations and they worship different gods. And those practices are considered by God to be detestable. And we cannot bring such people into our lives. And if we do so, it shows that we're being unfaithful to God, as the Israelites were showing. They weren't being faithful to God and doing what he commanded. And also, we can recognize that it considers to marry people who are not believers in Jesus Christ would bring great sorrow into our homes as well. That's what we see with Ezra. He is sorrowful by the way that he, he tears his hair and his beard and and his clothes, he recognises that this is terrible and it makes him very sad and it makes the people also sad and we'll see in further weeks what they do as a result of this. It makes for a sorrowful household as well. Just talk to a Christian who's married to an unbeliever and ask them how their Christian life is affected by being united to someone who is not a worshipper of God. And they will be able to tell you that it doesn't bring sorrow into their life. It doesn't remove all joy from their life, but it does bring some sorrow there. So what is the application today then? Well, if you're a single Christian and you're looking for a husband or a wife and you are a Christian, marry a Christian. And if you're not a Christian and you're here today, please don't marry one of our Christian brothers and sisters. They are only to marry Christians. Because it keeps them pure, it keeps them following God. They should marry a Christian who is going to be an encouragement to their faith, not a discouragement to their faith instead. So is the only application for Israelites and for single people in the church from this passage? No, I think we can make another application from a greater principle that is underlying all this as well. And that brings me to my fourth main point this morning. My fourth main point is we have all intermarried. We have all intermarried. We have to consider that all human marriages are based on the great marriage between God and his church, between Christ and the bride, his church. And when we sin as a Christian, you actually violate that marriage. Now, some sins are merely a passing adultery, a bit of a fling, that you engage in that sin for a small time, and so it's not really considered a marriage to that sin. But then there's other sins in our lives that we do like to marry, 
that we like to bring into our lives and we like to give them a room in our house. And we don't seem to be phased by that. We consider such sins not that serious and they end up becoming a tolerated evil within our lives and they may even be quite public. These sins that the Israelites were committing were quite public sin. You can't hide a wife in a box and pretend you're not married to her. Everybody knew that they were doing these things and that even the leaders were doing them. And such sins can come into our lives and be quite tolerated and be quite public and they don't distress us when they should distress us. What sort of sins can we take on so easily into our lives? Sins of anger, covetousness, anxiety and worry, discontent, grumbling, selfishness, lack of self-control, impatience, jealousy, worldliness. These sins can come into our life very easily and take up a house in our room and we can intermarry with them very easily. Why is such sin serious? Well, it can always lead to more and greater sin. We see that with the Israelites. This sin of marrying someone who is not a believer in God led them to more and more detestable practices. Solomon was a good example of that. He was a wise man. He did great things. And yet his, at the end of his life we see him there worshipping false gods. And so we have to recognise that if we engage in one sin and then we set, let that sin come into our lives and sit there quite nicely in our lives, take a house in our room, uh, in a room in our house, it will lead to more sin and even greater sin. And such sin also is serious because it reflects a deeper problem in our lives and unfaithfulness to God. All sin stems from a lack of faithfulness, that we do not believe that God is the God who he is, he claims to be in the scriptures. And so we think it's okay to sin, to allow such sins to affect our marriage with our God. What should you do when you become aware of such sin in your life? These sins that are tolerated, when they're shown to you, sometimes we should behave like Ezra. We should get violent with them. That may mean tearing your clothes, tearing your hair, tearing your beard if you've got a beard. But it may not mean going to that extent, but it may mean getting violent in your life and serious about those sins and wanting to eradicate them from your life. Because they are sins that are serious in the eyes of God. They reflect an unfaithfulness and they will lead to further sin. So we should get violent with them, sit down appalled and tremble at the words of God as they did in Ezra against this sin that they had committed. And then we should do what we see Ezra start to do next, is confess his sin. And we today should find forgiveness for such sin in Christ and then take action to rid ourselves of such sin as we'll see in Ezra in weeks to come. They take time to get rid of such sin in their lives. We have to remember that we, like the Israelites, are a fragile nation. Yes, we have a great God, a strong God, but we're fragile in many ways. We're jars of clay. And we cannot allow sin into our lives, to marry sin, different sins that we think are okay. We cannot allow those into our lives because it does great damage to us individually and corporately as part of the body of Christ. So my question for you this morning, you may not be single and looking for a spouse, but do you 
seek to not mingle the holy race, and that includes you if you're a believer in Christ, with the detestable practices of those around you. The world surrounds us. They have great detestable practices that our sinful hearts still lust after. Do you seek not to intermarry with such practices and to keep them from your life, not mingle the holy race with such practices? Let us speak with our God now. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for what we've been able to learn from Ezra this morning. Lord, we pray that we may not be like the Israelites and be content with certain sins that lead us far from yourself. Lord, we pray that we may see detestable practices in others and not want to unite with such practices, not want to damage our relationship with you that would lead us to more sin and greater sin. Lord, we pray that we may seek to be holy, to keep ourselves from evil, and we pray that this may glorify you and your Son as a result. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.